So we are in this series, we're coming to the end of a series, actually, it's called Ignite, and we are looking at a book in the Bible, in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, that looks back and kind of tells the story from the beginning right the way through to the end of the Old Testament, which is everything pre-Jesus, okay? Once Jesus comes, you're into the New Testament, but the Old Testament finishes, at least the way the, the Jewish Bible is organized, with the book of Chronicles. And it's not a book we tend to spend much time in, but hopefully it's been a helpful uh, one for us as we've been in this series, because the, the person who wrote Chronicles is writing history, not just to kind of tell the story once again, which would be fine, but I mean, you know, you don't want to just repeat yourself. He's telling the story from the perspective of trying to encourage the people that he's writing for, to say, look, all the way through history, when God's people have leaned in towards God, God has worked and blessed and stirred them up and done great things. And there's a whole load of history where God's people haven't done that, but I'm going to sort of minimize that and focus on the good stuff to try to encourage us today, this is still his, his day, encourage us today to look to God and to do uh, to kind of have the right response to a God who loves us, who's gracious, who's kind, who wants to bless us, and so on. So here we are 2,000 years later, after the New Testament is written, and we need the same encouragement, don't we? We need to be encouraged that our God is good, that He's faithful, He's kind, He's generous, He's gracious, He's merciful, and that He is ready to bless us. He wants to be at work in our midst. He wants to stir up the church and do great things in the church so that society as a whole can be blessed by the church. And we've thought over this series that down through the years, when the church has been really... Um, kind of church language, but on fire for Jesus, right? Really passionately on fire for him. Then the church makes a difference in society. Things like ending the slave trade and, uh, and uh, all the uh, early advances in medical care and looking after uh, orphans and widows and all these things that the church has done down through the years tends to come out of when the church is on fire for Jesus. And so, hence the name Ignite. We want to uh, look into God's Word, and we want it to ignite in us the kind of response that will be pleasing to Him. So, in 2 Chronicles, which is the second half of the, the scroll of Chronicles, there's this verse. It says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways... Uh, What's the fourth one? And seek, uh, seek my face. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. And so those four things are kind of like a, a table of contents for the book. Humble yourselves. Uh, we've seen that in a, a, a season in uh, 2 Chronicles where they humbled themselves and God did great things. Then it goes reverse order, funnily enough. Uh, so the next one was what? Seek the Lord, if they will seek the Lord then, and then we saw that in another uh, generation uh, further down the story, and if they will pray, and we saw that with the story of Jehoshaphat, and then we've got the turn from their wicked ways, and that's the one we're going to look at today. And this one is the most exciting of all. We've got one left, and that comes back to the first one with another humble yourselves, so you can prepare yourselves for that next week. So turn from your wicked ways. That's going to be kind of the theme of the story that we're going to look at. And I think this is, in many ways, the high point, almost like the climax of the story of 2 Chronicles, because we're looking at the, the story of a king whose name is Hezekiah. 
And uh, you'll find him uh, on page, well, let's start on page 379, which is chapter 28 of 2 Chronicles. So page 379 in one of these black Bibles. And actually on that chapter, chapter 28, it's looking at his father, King Ahaz. And Ahaz was the worst of the kings in the second book of Chronicles. He was absolutely horrific. And then after him comes Hezekiah, who, like I said, is probably the high point. And I just think it's worth pausing right there because isn't it easy to think or assume that things just kind of go on gradually? You know what I mean? Like uh, if things are going in a good direction, then they'll kind of get better. Or if things are going in a bad direction, then they'll kind of get worse. But Ahaz to Hezekiah is like whiplash. It's going from the very worst to one of the very best. And I think that's a huge encouragement because I'm sure there are some people here who would say, well, if I'm going to tell you the truth, my parents were a disaster. My dad was a nightmare. My, my mother was whatever. I'm not asking you to tell the story, but, but you know if that's you. And sometimes you feel sort of, that's it. My life is determined by the parents I had. Not according to this. Because we go from Ahaz to Hezekiah, from the worst to one of the best. Which means that no matter what background you've had, no matter how much damage your parents might have done to those around them, even to you, it does not mean that you are set on a path that cannot be changed. And so we come to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the story begins in chapter 29. And the thing that we want to notice in 28 before we move over to 29 is that one of the things Ahaz did was he he formed an alliance with the world's superpower. I mean, we're talking the largest, most intimidating superpower in the whole of history to that point. And some would argue, even through till today, the nation of Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria. Spelt slightly differently. And Assyria was the first war machine. They were terrifying. When Assyria attacked, everybody was petrified. And they'd taken out the northern kingdom and they'd done lots of damage. And here was Ahaz and he kind of panicked. He didn't trust God. And so he started paying money to Assyria. And as you're reading that in chapter 28, it's like, uh uh-oh, that's going to lead to trouble. Never goes well when they start trying to make a deal with the enemy instead of trusting in God. Sure enough, when we get through to the story of Hezekiah, Assyria is the threat. So try to imagine the most intimidating, most terrifying war machine ever known to humanity, and they're coming. All right, they're coming. In chapter 32, they arrive. This is one of those moments in biblical history that you can go and you can check Uh, The archaeologists, you can check the the museums, you can check the facts. In Assyria's history, it supports and endorses what happened here. That uh, Sennacherib, the the leader of this war machine, warmongering Assyrians, he came up as far as Jerusalem. He had them kind of caged up like a bird, ready to be destroyed. And in chapter 32, uh, Hezekiah and the Lord, more importantly, deal with that problem. I'll just give you a brief snapshot. Basically, Sennacherib comes and he starts talking to the people or having announcements made in Hebrew. So instead of making announcements in sort of his own language, he makes the announcements so that the people who were there can understand it. And the announcement basically is this. Everyone else has has lost 
all the others have been defeated, you don't stand a chance, right? It's not, not very good for morale, right, of the troops. So he comes with this kind of intimidation, and Hezekiah goes before the Lord, and he, well, he tells the people, uh, it makes a rousing speech, but he goes before the Lord, and he says, look, this is what Sennacherib is saying. And he prays, he trusts God. And then the Lord sends an angel. This is a classic moment in military history. He sends an angel during the night, wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Just, right? That's, that's huge. That's like Wembley plus Old Trafford full, just wiped out. And so then uh, Sennacherib goes back to Assyria. And sometime later, he's killed by two of his sons in one of his temples to the god Nisroch. So kind of a humiliating defeat for the biggest warmonger of all time. And it's because Hezekiah trusted the Lord and the Lord did it. Now, if we were to read the book of Kings, which gives an account of that, or Isaiah, which gives the same account of that, the focus would be completely on that. Right? This, this attack from Sennacherib and the Lord's deliverance and you know, wonderful, amazing moment in history. But when we're in Chronicles, we've got three chapters of something else before we get that story in fairly brief form. And I think it's fascinating because remember, the guy who's writing Chronicles is writing about spiritual things. He's writing to encourage spiritual response to God. And he tells the story of, uh, of Hezekiah to show what kind of a spiritual leader he was. And so how does Hezekiah, for three chapters, prepare the nation for this impending attack that is sure to come from Assyria? And the answer is, he prepares them to worship. Hezekiah is a spiritual leader. He's not a military leader. He's not a military strategist. He's not spending his time kind of training the soldiers and, you know, making sure that the guns are all nicely oiled. He, he's, he's there and he, says, he comes into power and he says, we need to sort out the worship. We're supposed to be God's people, but the temple's a mess. Worship isn't happening. We've got to get that right. And so Hezekiah does a three-chapter worship fix. And in the midst of that, we get probably the greatest revival uh, that I've seen in the Old Testament. So let's turn to uh, chapter 29. And we're not going to read all of 29, but we'll just get started here in verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. The temple was a complete mess. It was in disrepair. It had been uh, really hideously misused, abused. And he says, right, now is the time to get this whole thing sorted. He talks about the previous generations. He says, not with us. Let's get ready to worship. And so through the rest of chapter 29, it's all about cleansing the temple and preparing the priests and preparing the Levites. They were the ones that kind of led the worship services and saying, let's get this ready. You know, I I read it sometimes when I'm in the Old Testament like this, and I think, you know, as glad as I am that we don't have a temple, and believe me, I am glad. It saves a lot on airfare. It saves a lot on ritual. It's, you know, it's a complicated business having a temple. One thing that we sort of miss out on is all of that preparation and cleansing just to show how serious 
worship is and what a privilege worship is. And so there's this whole kind of rigmarole. If you read through the Old Testament, you get to Leviticus, you kind of get a sense of it. All the sacrifices and the offerings and who can do what, and it's all perfectly laid out. It's got to be this animal, not that animal, this priest, not that priest. You know, it's got to be at this time, not that time, on this altar, not that altar. And there's all these kind of specifications. And it's a little bit overwhelming when you're trying to imagine it. But I think the advantage of that for them was that that it made them realize or should have made them realize, wow, this is a serious business. Now, for us here, we kind of, uh, you know, arrive and sit down and go. There's some people who've uh, been here a couple of hours preparing and trying to get speakers to stop buzzing and all that kind of stuff. And that's helpful. That's preparation. And and there are some musicians that have been, you know, kind of practicing and preparing ahead of time. And and so for some of us, you know, there's a few days lead in to worship. But I wonder if just as a principle for us as a church, it's worth thinking about how can I prepare my own heart to come together with God's people and worship? We deliberately have a a style here, a way of doing things. We're deliberately as relaxed as we can be and casual. There's a purpose to that. But that doesn't mean that worship isn't important. And so how can we prepare our hearts ahead of time, maybe pray ahead of time before we come together so that when we're together, our hearts can be pointed towards God? Something to think about. But let's get into chapter 30. And I want to read through this because this chapter is absolutely fascinating. Basically, by the end of chapter 29, they've cleansed the temple, and they've cleansed the priesthood. They've done all the things that they could do, and they finish on the 16th day of the first month. Now, if you've got your Jewish calendar uh, to hand, then you'll know that Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the Jewish first month. Ah, just missed it. But it's okay. There's provision in the law that if they miss, if somebody's a long distance away or for some reason they're ceremonially un- unclean, they can, they can do Passover in the second month. That's what ends up happening. Okay, the whole nation does Passover a month late. So let's jump into chapter 30. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. That's some, some remaining people in the northern kingdom that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. So verse 4, the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly, so they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan. That's like from Land's End to John O'Groats, the whole distance, not just Judah, not just the southern kingdom, but from the tip of the southern kingdom to the tip of the northern kingdom. They're declaring to all people that they should come and gather for this Passover. Um, where are we? Verse 5. Uh, to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So, couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded, saying... And now we get this four-verse speech from the king. Okay, let's, let's see if we can notice how many times... He uses the word turn, return, repent, 
they're all the same word, okay? Let's, let's see if we can count them as we go here. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord... Your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. How many did we get there? Six, seven, something like that? Seven. Good job. Seven times. That's, that's the key word. Key word. Like if, if my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways. That word turn is just a little word, but it's hugely significant. Often in English, we, we say repent. It's used, uh, I think, 118 times in the Old Testament in a turning to God religious kind of sense. It's used about a thousand times for other things too. But, but when it's used of people repenting, there's kind of two parts to it. I think it's uh, 40 times that it's turn from sin. It's kind of like a 90 degree, just turning away from sin. But 48 times, it's used in the context of turning to God. And so repentance is not uh, this kind of religious idea of stop being a bad person, start being a good person. Now, that's much too, too low of a goal. It's turning from sin and from idolatry and whatever bad stuff you've got mixed up in. Turn away from that. And then the second part really is faith. Turn in trust towards God. Turn your hearts towards Him. And so what Hezekiah here is saying to the nation is, come on, guys, we've got to turn to the Lord. If we will draw near to Him... I'm quoting the New Testament now, but it's kind of fitting here. If we will draw near to him, then he's ready to draw near to us. And so he's calling the people to turn toward God. Notice the verse 7. He's saying, do not be like your fathers and your brothers. Again, the point we made at the start. Just because people before us lived a certain way, it doesn't mean that we have to continue that pattern. I remember hearing the testimony of a, a friend of mine and uh, he was, uh, grew, up, grew up in a very tough situation, abused by his father. And he said as he grew older, he discovered, uh, he heard stories of how his father had been abused by his father. Which it kind of, you know, it doesn't excuse it, but it sort of creates this sense of understanding a little bit for what he'd gone through. But he said he remembers the day when his wife told him that she was pregnant and he was filled with fear. Because he suddenly had this overwhelming fear. What if I'm going to just continue this cycle from one generation to the next? And he, he couldn't stand the thought. But as he gave the testimony, his two daughters were almost, uh, one was grown, the other one was a late teenager. And he said, praise the Lord, by his grace, that cycle's been stopped. You see, just because something has happened in the past doesn't mean that it has to happen. It is possible for those horrible uh, cycles of hurt and pain to be stopped. But we need God. It's not something we're going to do by ourselves. So here Hezekiah is saying to them, don't be like 
your fathers. Yield yourselves to the Lord. I wonder how often we need to do that. Just say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours today. I'm, I'm here again. Maybe I messed up yesterday, but I'm, I'm, I'm here now and I'm yielding myself to you. Maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be at a, a church service or a campfire. Maybe it's in the shower in the morning. You know, maybe it's as you're driving to work and you just go, oh, Lord, I, I just want, I want to live for you. I'm yours. I yield myself to you. And, and then verse 9 I love the, the way he finishes it. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. It's amazing when you start looking for it, how often the Bible bases and roots the appeal to us to trust in God in the character of God. The, the reason we can come to God, the reason we can dare to yield our lives to him and to trust him is because of the kind of God that He is. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to embrace. He's ready to bring you home. He knows everything you've done. He knows every place you've been. He knows every thought you've had. And He's waiting with His arms open. If that were not true of our God, we would be in trouble, every last one of us, wouldn't we? But His character says, come home. Come back to me. And because of who he is, we can confidently approach him. So there's the appeal. And the appeal has gone across the, the whole nation. So the couriers traveled all over. Um, I'm going to drop down to verse 12 to avoid some long names. The hand of, the, of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And so, verse 13, many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. So, they're going to do Passover. That flows into a one-week festival called unleavened bread. And so, all the people are coming together. Verse 14, they set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem. And all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests, through the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. Now look at verse 17. These next couple of verses, we could so easily skip them. But these are astonishing verses. It says, For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. Now, if, if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, that should make you nervous, right? Here's people coming. They're not cleansed. They're not prepared. They haven't done all the rituals, and they've come together, and they're eating the Passover. This could spell trouble. If there's one thing we see in the Old Testament that God takes seriously, it's that His people should approach Him according to the rules, right? Well, notice what happens here. Verse 18, it says, For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone 
who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. It's so easy to just keep, keep moving and skip that, but I want us to pause there because that's an incredible moment. The people are coming together and they're worshiping and they're not doing it right. And Hezekiah prays to the Lord because he's a good God and basically says to the Lord, please pardon them. These people, they're, they're setting their hearts to seek you. This is a, a positive thing. Would you, would you forgive them? And the Lord does. I think that's a massively significant moment because down through the centuries, it's not just God that gets bent out of shape when people don't worship right. If I can say this as reverently as possible, it's also God's people that can get significantly bent out of shape when worship isn't done the way they think it should be. All right, let's, let's be honest, right? The church has a history of arguing about silly things. So, so think about church worship, for example. For the longest time, it was considered innovative and inappropriate and unhelpful and ungodly and just plain wrong to have melody in the music, <laughs> even just vocal melody. It was just chanting. Someone tried to introduce the organ way too early. That got shut down. Centuries later, the organ was acceptable. But what about other things? It took a long time for the piano to be used in a, in a church service. That's a barroom instrument. What's that doing in here? It's not appropriate. What about William Booth, the Salvation Army with the, the brass instruments? That was controversial back in the day. In fact, every single innovation that has ever happened down through the years has been controversial. I'd sometimes, if, if this was a really traditional audience, you know, the kind of church that says, we just want the old stuff, if you were that kind of people, I would say, by the way, the old stuff, a lot of that is barroom music. Right? A lot of those tunes were taken straight out of the sea shanties and the barrooms and so on. If you want really prayed over, godly, deliberately designed music, you kind of need to come up to date because that's what the worship leaders are doing now. Not stealing tunes from the terraces, but writing their own. So, you know, you can argue it in all sorts of ways. But, but I, the point I want to make is this. The issue in worship is not the instruments. It's not the tunes. It's our hearts. And this is a moment in biblical history that we can kind of put a flag in and say, praise the Lord for that. Because, you know, sometimes we, we might not get it quite right. Or there may be something about the style of music here that you don't prefer. That's okay. How's your heart? Because that's what the Lord is looking at. That's the important thing. And it's an incredible privilege. We just heard about the persecuted church. Believers that, that, that may never meet another believer that may never hold a Bible in their hands, that, that would absolutely dream of being together with other Christians. And in some places, they'll go through their whole life and get to heaven before they have fellowship. You see, when, when there's that context, let's never descend here into kind of little niggly kind of complainy, you know, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. It's so wrong in contrast to what it could be like for us. What a privilege we have. What a blessing to have musicians. Stringed instruments, it's biblical. Symbols, it's biblical. It's not an issue of right and wrong. It's really an issue of our hearts.
And are our hearts seeking the Lord as we come together to worship? That's what Hezekiah understood. So let's keep reading and see what, uh, what happens. Um, where are we? Verse 21. The people of Israel who were present kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings, giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. Hey, this is revival. Who hangs out at the temple for 14 days, right? This is exciting. So they've, they've done the whole thing for the first time properly in years, and they're so blown away by the privilege. They say, let's do it again. We haven't really, you know, encouraged that here, but, you know, who knows? And so... Um, at 6.30, we'll finish. Uh, so, so there's this kind of great moment, and these people are worshiping. And, and you go on reading, and there's all this sacrifice and stuff. Thankfully, we don't have to do that anymore. Uh, and, and everybody uh, rejoiced, end of verse 25. So there's great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. That's got to be one of the best chapters in the Bible, hasn't it? Just just imagine, after all the years of neglect, and all the kind of that they'd gone through, and I'm not even getting into the details of how they had just kind of ruined everything, Hezekiah said, no, come on. God's worthy of our worship. And it's our privilege. He's so good. It's our privilege to come together and to worship him. Now, chapter 31 kind of keeps the story going. Uh, And for the sake of time, let me just flag up three highlights from chapter 31. If the great kind of thrust of the story of Hezekiah is that as God's people turn from evil back to him, then they can enjoy the incredible privilege of worship together. Chapter 31 says, yeah, but worship is not just music. It's not just feasting. I mean, music and food, not, not a bad combo, right? We, we believe in both of those things. That's great. But biblical worship also includes some other things too. At the start of chapter 31, it says, When all was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. True worship involves destroying idols. For them, that was literally altars and and idols. But but it may be that for us, there are times where we're worshiping God and we suddenly feel convicted that there's something in our life that is just dragging us away from Him. Something that's, that's got a grip on our hearts and is drawing us away. It would be incredibly worshipful to go home and burn that magazine to go home and block that website, to go home and pour the bottle down, whatever it is that's got a grip on your heart that is keeping you from living a a life of joy and celebration of Jesus. If there's something in your life, and I don't need to name it, God can put his finger on it, but go home and destroy it. That's worship. It's worshipful to destroy anything that draws us away from him. 
Then it goes on and it starts talking about giving. It's worshipful to give, to contribute. And, and in this case, they were contributing to the kind of functioning of the temple. And the collection was so overwhelming and so overpowering that, that they kind of were like, oh, we don't know where to put it all. There's so much. You see, when God's people are really gripped by his goodness, then part of our worship is to give. I'm sure we haven't said too much about giving over the last five years of this church. We probably should have said more, but let me just say this. Giving is part of living for the Lord. It's part of the Christian life. There there are ways in which you will not experience joy as long as you hold back from giving. There's principle right the way through Scripture of giving the first fruits, the first part of income, the first part of the harvest, the first part of what you have. Giving it to the Lord is a declaration of faith and saying, I'm trusting you, Lord. I can barely afford my bills as it is, but I'm going to give you the first part. And I'm sure the trustees here at Trinity would be urging me to keep going at this point because we do have quite a deficit this year and so on. But but I don't want to make it kind of focused on the money thing. I just want to say it's an invitation that actually as God's people, when we set up the payment and do the transfer, that's worship. That's part of what it is to live in response to God's goodness. And then there's a third piece here. As well as destroying idols and sacrificial giving, the third piece is living a holy life. There's a bit right at the end there where it talks about the, uh, the priests, which in the New Testament means all of us. Verse 18, they were enrolled with all their little children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, the whole assembly, for they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. Part of worship doesn't happen on Sunday. It happens Monday morning and Tuesday evening and Wednesday during the day at work with that awkward person that you work with. Part of worship is, is our response throughout our lives, dealing with things that pull us away from God, giving of our resources as a declaration of our trust in Him, and living a life that's pleasing to Him. We'll, we'll fail, we'll struggle, we'll mess up, but He's gracious and He's forgiving, and He'll allow us to He'll pick us up and we can yield ourselves again and we can turn back to him. As many times as it takes, let's just keep on doing it because that's the right response for God's people responding to his goodness. And so with all of that, three chapters, then you come to chapter 32. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded and encamped thinking to win them for himself. You see how Hezekiah is such a spiritual leader? With all of the worship and the temple stuff and the giving and the holiness and the the music and, and, and getting things right, he had prepared the people so that when Sennacherib arrived, he, on behalf of the nation, was able to go before God and say, God, there's this man who wants to wipe us out, but you're in charge, you're God. Would you mind? And the Lord dealt with him. I wonder if, if when we read that, we find ourselves thinking, okay, so how about us then? A, we're not anticipating a, you know, an invasion from Belgium or something. You know, there's political tensions, but it's not that. But more specifically, we're, we don't have a temple. We don't sacrifice animals. We're, you know, we don't keep Passover and unleavened bread. But what do we do? 
We're not living in anticipation of, of a future attack. We're not living uh, remembering something that, that happened in the ancient Egypt. But we've got something much better as Christians. The reason we sing and the reason that, that the words have been up on the screen, you notice almost every single thing we sing, it's talking about something that happened in the past. And it's us praising God for His goodness demonstrated, not just in delivering Israel from Egypt, not even in delivering Judah from Sennacherib, but in delivering us from our sin. So when we sing, we don't think about these events. We think about Jesus on a cross. Because God sent His Son into this world to die in our place so that the great enemy, the devil, sin, death, all of that, could be defeated. And that's why across the world today, in massive venues and in tiny gatherings behind closed doors and in average-sized groups like this, with this kind of music or like the music I was enjoying last week with 117 pipes across the front of the church, with all sorts of different styles and different approaches, different languages, different volumes of drum, there's all sorts of worshiping going on right the way around the world today because God sent His Son into this world to deal with the sin problem that we have, to rescue us. And if, if there's ever been a reason to worship God, it's that, isn't it? And so, yeah, we're looking back to something and we're praising God for it. And at the same time, we're looking forward. We're looking forward not to the invasion of Assyria. We're looking forward to the invasion of Christ into this world to come and to take us home to be with Him. And so in many ways, we're just like them don't need to sacrifice animals, praise the Lord. We don't need a temple, praise the Lord. In fact, we can rent a school and it counts. But the beauty of it is we look back to what he's done in his goodness and we look forward to seeing him face to face. And so we, as God's people, have the ultimate privilege and that is to worship him. And if anyone is here today and you're thinking, actually, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself one of God's people. I'm so glad you're here because this is an invitation to join to discover what life is really all about. And that is to become part of the family of God so that you can respond with joy to the only one that offers satisfaction, the only one that can truly love you, the only one that can be the father that you never had. And that's the beauty of Christianity is it spreads. And it's spread across the world and it's spreading through Chippenham. And so with, with hopefully full hearts, we come to the end of the message and we transition into communion and then into song worship and then into week worship, as in W-E-E-K. The kind of worship where we go home and get rid of anything that's getting in the way, anything or anyone that's blocking our love for the Lord. The kind of worship where we go home and we say, you know what, I want to give more resources, maybe to the local church, maybe to persecuted believers, whatever. I want to give and Lord, by your grace, I want to live for you, worshipfully, holy this week.